0: Folks, I'm honored to have Alan Weiss here with us. He's the CEO of Weiss Analytics. He is the co-founder and former CEO of Case Schiller Weiss, producer of the Standard of Poor's Case Schiller Index, which was acquired by Fiserv in 2002. Since then, he has done some number of things. He was the co-founder and CEO of Valshield. Want to hear about that, get an update on what that was about, because where we're going is valuations. Where's the appraisal industry? Where valuation? How are we to be doing this? We got an aging out old appraiser group. What are the solutions? And Alan has his thoughts on that. He's doing a lot of work in that area. We're really excited to have you here, Alan. And joining me is Jack Denry in this interview. So Alan, welcome to the microphone.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: I've given our listeners some insights into your background, but I'd like more insights, especially how you at Yale started out with this project that turned into such a significant product out for our industry. Talk about that.
1: Sure. Well, before I ever got to Yale, I had played real estate developer. I'd bought one three-family house in Cambridge, Mass., with a friend of mine, with the intention of renovating it and selling it. We ended up each keeping a unit selling a third unit to a friend. And I (laughs) still owned that when I went to Yale. And we learned about the virtues of holding a diversified portfolio and how that's much better than having all your assets in one focused area. So I said, okay, I have this condo in Cambridge, Mass, and I'm investing in my career. How does someone like me take this great advice and diversify? And we're told we're supposed to diversify. On the other hand, we're told we should own a home. It seems to me if you own a home and you put down a small down payment and you borrow the rest, you're the opposite of diversified. You've got maybe 10 times your net worth in one house what's going on here? How do you do these two things? And I was very unsatisfied with the answer for my finance professor, which was, oh, that's only for rich people. That didn't suit me very well. So I said, okay, well, I started asking professors, well, how do the experts track home values? How do I manage this risk? Can you forecast this risk? And someone said to me, I don't remember who at this point, oh, you ought to walk down the street to the economics department. There's this guy there named Bob Schiller. He and Chip Case are just publishing a paper on home prices so that you could help answer those questions that way. So it's a little bit not like me to kind of step out of my comfort zone, but I decided to because I was very curious. So I walked down the street, knocked on his door of his office and introduced myself. And he told me about these indexes. He showed them to me. The paper wasn't even published yet. And I said, well, I'm interested in studying these indexes. I want to see if this market's efficient. Can we forecast with them and so on? And he kind of laughed and he said, well, that's funny, because that was the next paper I was going to write. That kind of interplay right there is sort of set the tone for the whole friendship that evolved. So I did do this research project. He was very generous. He gave me this data and he did go on to publish a paper about forecasting home prices. And this kind of began a 12 year collaboration from the time I was still at Yale. I graduated. I called him one day and I said, you know, it's still bothering me that people are undiversified. I think we should start a company that lets people hedge their home prices. So I can go on and on and tell you the whole story. I love
0: those stories. Yeah. It gives us a foundation. This was gnawing at you and you saw an opportunity and that calls on my entrepreneurial genes. And I'm really interested in how that story develops. So kind of give us the Reader's Digest version. Where did that go? Talk
1: about that. So a couple of years later, I was a management consultant, but this was in the early nineties when Home prices were tanking in the Northeast and Southern California, and I had friends who were suffering from this. So it seemed like there was a real need. It it wasn't theoretical. He said, it's interesting because I'm thinking there should be a futures market on home prices. So I said, well, why don't we join forces and work on that together? So we did, and we needed a price index for the futures market, and I also thought we needed one for some kind of insurance. So we ended up producing these indexes for the Chicago Board of Trade, and then people started wanting to buy the indexes, not the financial product. So I spent 10 years building that business, basically an analytics business before the word fintech even existed. And I guess the rest is history. So we did succeed in producing a new standard, the case Index. We created one of the first AVMs. They were used for hundreds of thousands of mortgages. And I never gave up the dream of creating ways for homeowners to hedge or get some of the equity out of their house without having to go into debt. And I continue to work on this to this day. And that's the other company I'm running, ValShield, which is actually newer than Weiss Analytics.
0: Oh, okay. So let's talk about ValShield. Tell us about what the mission is, what you're creating there.
1: Sure. So basically our thought process is people right now have a historically high amount of equity in their homes. If you look at how much debt people have taken on on their homes in the last 10 years, it's barely moved. Mm-hmm. It's whatever it is, $11 trillion. It's barely moved. No one's pulling money out of their houses. But the value of the houses have tripled. So people have gone from maybe having $10,000, 50000 100000 to having hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in their homes. They right. don't want to borrow on it. Many of them don't want to sell, but they sure could use the money. Yes. So ValShield's mission is to create an organized equity market for homeowners just like we have an organized mortgage market today. It's a huge infrastructure. It seems like half the uh, industry of the U.S. is one way or another tied to the mortgage industry because there's such an important and significant asset base. But more people hold equity in their house and there's no organized equity financing. Companies have organized equity. They can issue stock or they can borrow. Homeowners can't issue stock in their house. They can only borrow. So they're faced with this binary choice, either I sell. And I don't have my house anymore, but I got all this cash. And I know people who do that. There's a lot of people who are doing that. Or I stay with all this equity or I go into debt. And a lot of people just don't like the idea of debt. So we're trying to create a market so people can literally sell a chunk of their house, never have to pay it back. And the investor then gets the ride of appreciation or depreciation until the homeowner sells. And we don't expect people to hold those instruments one house per investor. We want it all to get pooled. So you have like to have a REIT of I'll own houses in Florida or I'll own houses in Southern California. And then those people get cash and the investors <laughs> get exposure to the market that people want. That's what we're trying to do.
0: I, I love your vision. Everything you have touched has got such forward thinking, out-of-the-box components to it. Jack, I got to go to you. Listening to Alan talk here, isn't that just interesting? It's so fascinating. Well, it's
2: revolutionary, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and when you really think about it, David, mortgage markets that have been traditionally favored by investors will fall out of favor with this type of revolutionary idea. Prime example, Texas, right? Texas never really rode the bubble up and that's why we didn't do so bad in 07 and 08 and 09. I mean, where you get volatility is where you can either make a lot of money or not make a lot of money in this kind of concept, right? I mean, it's the markets that don't give you a lot of fluctuation that'll limit the returns on this type of concept. I'm just flabbergasted.
0: You created a product that caught my attention. Oh gosh, maybe five years ago now. And it was accuracy of predicting the value of a home moving out. It it was a heat map, if I recall what it was, and it Mm -hmm. created a map of what the values had been, where it gone, and why some homes appreciated more than others. Talk about that. Is that a component of what you're doing in ValShield? Has that contributed to what you're doing in ValShield?
1: Yeah, they're very much connected. The connection is that my company, Weiss Analytics, produces home price indexes down to the house level. We produce 80 million house-specific price indexes and the maps that you mentioned are a way to take in a lot of that information all at once and see the pattern. So we create a map of a whole metro area and we place 10,000 houses on the map where they belong. And then we color code each dot by the rate of appreciation in a given month. And then we roll them forward like a movie. And you get to see an animation of how price changes are shifting through the marketplace. And you can see sometimes they move like a weather front, like the crash in Miami started in the north. And you could see over a period of about two years, it gradually moved southward from Fort Lauderdale through Miami. And so if someone had had a map like that, they really could have seen what was happening. And with these green spots where they're still bidding up houses, they would know not to. The connection to Valshield is that The idea is that when you sell a piece of your house, how do you know how much it's changed in value? We don't think it makes sense talking about appraisals to have an appraisal in at the beginning and appraisal out at the end, because you don't know in between how much has my house gone up and appraisals can be a little bit off and be a little bit noisy and, and not necessarily objective and not necessarily uniform, whereas the price indexes are objective, are uniform, and you always get to see it. So when you take out a Val share on your house, you get a statement every month. If you were to pay it off today, if you were to sell today, this is the dollar value. And the investor also can see a statement. So they can easily be rolled up into securities because everyone always knows where they stand. And the actual contract says when this is over, the appreciation the homeowner is going to pay is based on the price index on their house, which does not know about how much they've changed the house. So... If the house has not been maintained well, that doesn't hurt the investor because the index doesn't go down based on the condition. If the homeowner has invested in the house and made their house more valuable, the index doesn't know about that either. So basically, you're only buying or selling the market-driven value change, not the physical condition value change. Commonality is the price index.
0: Yeah, we're looking at a lot of migration of people out of, in some cases, we're seeing number of factors into it. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. We're seeing a migration out of blue states into red states. There's a number of reasons about that, but there is a migration going on and a movement. For example, just talking to someone who was talking about all the migration out of the Seattle market, it's still a hot market, still going well, but to the point where there is a premium being charged to someone moving out of Seattle down into our area. I just haven't knew it because I know a family is considering making a move and they're looking at that. And the cost to move from here back up to Seattle, you get a much lower rate. Talk about what we are seeing and sensing as the great migration. You've talked about that before we got on the air here. I want to get your understanding of what you mean by the great migration.
1: Sure. So one aspect of it is, as you said, people are moving out of certain areas. There's a net outflow of migration, and there's a net inflow into others. And the areas where there's a net outflow tend to be the more expensive areas on the two coasts. The prices are higher for houses, the tax burden is higher, and they're moving into places in the South, the Southwest and the Southeast. So Arizona is experiencing a huge inflow of people, mostly from California. Texas is experiencing a huge inflow Florida, the same. And if you look at the northern markets, like Chicago, New York, these places are seeing a net outflow of people, as is California. So people that you could just picture a map of the US, people are moving away from the coasts and from the north to the south. That's a general trend that's going on. I think it's partly taxes. I think it's partly people liking the climate. I think partly it's because people are more mobile, because COVID, one of the positives that came out of it has been more adoption of remote working so people can choose to live where they want and not in any way take away from their ability to do their jobs. So there's a number of factors, and that's also impacting housing markets, but it's impacting a lot of things. A lot of things, yeah.
0: I do
2: have a question about the Great Migration, and my question is, Alan, it costs money To migrate. And is there socioeconomic impact of the Great Migration? I mean, look, if you're migrating because of taxes, that means you earn enough that the taxes that you pay are now motivating you to leave where you currently reside at right? I mean, if you don't pay any taxes, then increasing taxes doesn't really make any difference to you. And the cost to move because you want warmer weather, that's not affordable by a lot of people. So is there kind of a socioeconomic overlay to this that says those people that are migrating can afford the cost of migration and that places them in that median house cost to a higher house cost or a more expensive house cost.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think that there's a range of kinds of people who are moving, and the the reasons are somewhat different. But even if you have someone who isn't a very high wage earner, many, many people who aren't necessarily in the top 10% of wealth still have built up quite a bit of equity in their homes. I met a couple the other day that had sold their place in Boston, and they don't live anywhere now. They just said, oh, we sold our place. When we're in Boston, we stay at our aunt's house. We're kind of digital nomads and we're not sure where we're going to land. That's one kind of person. My hunch is they pocketed a few hundred thousand dollars in appreciation from their condo. They're married couple in their early thirties. They both can work from anywhere. I come across a lot of people like that. So I would say they're relatively well off and I think they kind of fit the profile you're talking about. But I also think that there are people who are older, have kids, or maybe retired. They wanna cash out, they do cash out. And then they go to a market where prices are half or a third. So people are buying houses for cash in less expensive areas all over the country. And now they own their home outright, they might do some work, I think this appreciation has given people a lot of freedom, and I don't think it's limited to the wealthiest. I think, in fact, it's probably had more impact on the average person than it has on the wealthier people. Thank
2: you. As I begin to think about the great migration, the first question I had was, well, who is migrating?
1: Yeah, no, Um, it makes sense. I have in front of me the value for the average median value per house for each market and what's happening to prices there. Generally speaking, it's true that the markets that are performing the least well right now are the lowest cost markets. My hunch there is that there are people leaving, but they're not being replaced in the higher cost areas, even the places where there's a net outflow. Prices are going gangbusters in most places, prices are just going absolutely gangbusters, regardless of who's coming and going. So it's very hard to directly see by price how to differentiate who is moving. I don't have any direct information about the profile of people. I could just surmise it by who I've met and the correlations I see between the price changes and the value levels of the houses. And I don't see anything very significant. I think across the board, for the most part, prices are rising. So it looks like everyone's doing it to me. Okay. Thanks.
0: Is there any particular housing markets that are being more impacted by this migration you're talking about? You've mentioned the coastal states, the Northeast to some degrees? What are some of the other markets and who's benefiting from that? We're certainly seeing it in Florida and here in Texas.
1: I think it seems to be the major metros, for the most part, in the Mm -hmm. Southwest and across the whole South, really. There's plenty of smaller markets in that chunk of the country, which are not doing well at all. But if you look at Dallas, Phoenix, Miami, these markets are just going absolute gangbusters.
0: What's also interesting to me is like, Markets like Seattle, where there is a lot of outflow, other parts that are higher end, like you're saying, they're still going gangbusters. How do you explain that? How long does that go on before there's enough migration out? There's a net negative migration that it does have an impact.
1: Yeah, I see the markets have reached a really torrid pace. So one of the metrics we use to measure how hot a market is the percent of houses rising because we have a price index on every single house. I can tell you whether... 80% of the houses are rising, 90%, 99% or 100%. And there are markets that are reaching 100% rising, which we haven't seen since right before the meltdown in the 08, but I don't see any evidence of a meltdown coming. So I explain it by saying, interest rates have made homes much, much more affordable. It's not like fewer people are selling. People complain about inventory. The inventory is low because sales volume is high because houses get purchased rapidly. It's not that there are fewer people selling, it's that people are buying faster and more people want to buy. So I think a combination of interest rates, more people reaching household formation age in their 30s and the desire to get away from everyone else because of the pandemic, all have kind of conspired to create this crazy market. I think it could moderate some, but I don't see a reversal. I don't see much of a correction coming in the short term.
0: Well, that's good news for many of the housing markets, even where there is a lot of out-migration. But how are homeowners' needs changing as a result of all this?
1: Well, homeowners have more choices. So one of their needs is to um, understand what their choices are and to act on them. I mean, there are people, for example, who have a lot of equity and they're doing well. But the market is so hot, what they need is a way to buy their next house. They want to move up or they want to move out but they lack a down payment. They have all their equity tied up in their house. So in a very hot market, that creates a problem for people. So people either have to sell and then rent and then buy, or there are some interesting services that have sprung up to help people in that situation. And full disclosure, my company, ValShield, is one of them. The idea is that there's different solutions. So one is i identified the house I want to move into, a company called Ribbon, will buy that house for you and rent it to you until you manage to sell your other house and can then get a mortgage and purchase the house from Ribbon. Easy Knock does the opposite. They'll buy your current house from you, freeing up your equity so then you can buy your next house. And then once you buy your next house, you move out of the house that they purchased and then they go and sell it. And so in both cases, they're either buying the next house so you can move out and move into the next one or they buy your current house. And our solution is to buy a piece of your current house that you can use as a down payment for your next house and always live in the house that you own and basically free up your equity that way. And that's one tiny example of use cases for equity if you could get at it. So there's many, many ways homeowners' needs are changing. One of them is hot market, how do I move?
2: So my question is, is as homeowners' needs change, then what can be done to meet these needs. And I think you just gave us a good example, Alan, of uh, ribbon, right? So are there other examples about what the industry needs to
1: do to meet the needs of these homeowners that are migrating? Sure. I mean, I I think another example is the people who are better off, who don't necessarily need to or want to sell their first house. Maybe they have roots there, they have kids there, and the, the couple is older, they want to move somewhere else, So on the higher end of things, I think there's a need to help people manage that whole process. It's complicated. I'm moving out. I need advice. Should I own my house and rent it out? Should I own my house and rent it out on a short term basis, on a long term basis? Should I just simply sell it? I think people need advice that's kind of integrated between finance and rental options and property management. People are getting more sophisticated and they have more choices. But I think that the service kind of lag behind. But there's been a lot of innovation around home transactions as well. So I wouldn't say there isn't innovation. I would just say that the range of needs are evolving more rapidly than the innovation can meet those needs.
0: What you're describing is a many new options for homeowners to access their equity. What new ideas are out there, Alan, that we can look forward to as far as accessing the equity that many have in their homes these days?
1: Yeah. Well, there's been a category of company that hasn't really taken off, which is called co-equity. There's a number of companies that offer co-equity where you stay put and you quote, sell a piece of your house. There's no payments. It's not debt. And then the company or the investor participates in your appreciation. It hasn't really taken off because the investors kind of stuck with this long-term asset and it's expensive. They charge a lot. Unless you really need this money, it's not smart. But I think that to me, the dream is to be able to take a piece of your house, let's say you have a million-dollar house or a $400,000 house, and many people own their homes outright or have very small mortgages these days. So you take 100000 of your equity and you, quote, sell it, you get the $100,000 check. The key to make that attractive is what does that investor do with that $100,000? They're going to charge a lot if they're just sitting there stuck with it until you move. And that's how I think it needs to be. It's not really selling equity unless you get to stay there as long as you want and you decide when you move and when you do sell, that's when the investor cashes out because they're a silent partner. The solution, I believe, is to roll all these equity pieces up into a pool that investors can buy. And once investors can buy and sell them, now no one's going to be worried about when is the homeowner going to move because I know I can sell my share in a thousand houses whenever I want like a REIT. To me, this would be a, an amazingly beneficial product. And frankly, I've devoted a lot of my career to trying to make this happen, making incremental progress. The reason I think it's so beneficial is number one, not having liquidity is a really bad thing. People need liquidity for any number of reasons at different stages in their lives. They're unemployed or the opposite. They're doing well, but they want to diversify their portfolio for their kids' education. All the reasons people used to take out HELOCs. It's always better if you have choices, if you're going to use the money wisely. And having all your money stuck in your house just doesn't do you any good. It just sits there and you're undiversified. So from the homeowner point of view, I just think it's extremely beneficial to have choices at your education and so on. It's also really good for the economy, the local economy and the national economy. If people could invest this wealth and spend this wealth in ways that could be in its own stimulus package, completely private sector, no taxes, no nothing. It's just, I get to use my money for something that speeds up the economy, everybody wins. And on the investor side, it's like all the way back to graduate school, how do I diversify? Just Ooh. as homeowners have too much of this equity, There are any number of ways that investors are trying to participate in ownership of single family homes. And most of them are bad. They're bad for the neighborhood. They're bad for home ownership. They want to buy the homes outright and rent them to you. That's not really the American dream. It's not really what promotes stability for people. But another way to do it is let them buy a piece of the house. Let the homeowner continue to manage the house. They're your best super for the house. They care about it. They live there. It's super efficient. And then you go along for the ride with the appreciation. So my dream is to create something out of this 15 trillion or 20 trillion of equity, take a few trillion of it, stick it in these REITs that they know exactly how much they have because the return is indexed, and now it trades. And then this will increase the value of homes. It'll also reduce the cost of home ownership. Because if you have equity, you're not paying a mortgage on it. You have a partner who doesn't need to be paid every month because they're participating in the appreciation. To me, it's a win-win-win.
0: What are the headwinds to this? It just seems like such an innovative, brilliant idea. You've created liquidity on both ends of the market for the guy that has the equity as well as the investor. What are you experiencing as headwinds? Why is this not taking
1: off? Look, I think the main reason is because in order to reach that point of liquidity, it has to be at scale. If I say to one investor, why don't you give that guy $100,000? You're going to get a great return. I told him he can stay as long as he wants. He's 40 years old. The investor's going to say, when am I going to get my money out? I have to say, I don't know. However, if a billionaire came along with $5 billion and they said, we're going to take $5 billion and over a couple of years, we're going to deploy it into these indexed equity pieces. And once we have several billion dollars owned, This whole thing is so big and performing well and so transparent that we'll just do an IPO. So you need somebody who's willing to have that vision. If I can do this IPO, then probably what I paid for these houses will be way less than what I can get for them when I do the IPO. Because... The houses will have appreciated, and there's something called the liquidity premium. People pay more for a liquid asset of the same type. I just think it's kind of so far out of the box that it's been too much of a leap all at once. So we're nibbling at it in little pieces, like the equity bridge I described. is a, right. It's much easier to get started because it doesn't require the liquidity. It's shorter term. Investors say, that's fine. I can wait four or five months until the guy sells his house. So that's where we're starting.
0: That's a good place to start. Jack, do you want to add in?
1: Well, I think Alan made the comment
2: that resonated with me when he said it's so far out of the box. This is a couple standard deviations out of the box, David. And he's right. Nobody values that single investment, right? But once you get a pool of these, right, Now you have weighted average maturity or weighted average days to sell, and you can begin to compare that against other investments and say, okay, well, my weighted average maturity here on this pool is 14 months or 17 months or whatever it is, but my return is modeled out to be X. I'll take that security, right? So it's really building this into a liquid securities market that really triggers the interest of investors out in the space.
1: I think that's exactly right. So, the way I think of it is people move on average every seven or 10 years. Let's say these people aren't any different, the people who've sold a piece of equity in their homes. So, it'll cash flow. Let's say uh, every 10 years it turns over. Well, that's 10%. That's 10% cash flow. That's not bad. I mean, most assets don't cash flow 10%. You're right. If you have enough of them, then they will randomly mature roughly 10% a year. It'll cash flow and people will see that but you have to get to scale to get there. And you also have to get to scale so that you can be taken seriously by an investment bank and so on. So it's starting to happen. I mean, we have created these Val shares. We have created them on a small scale. People can now go to Valshare.com and apply. And we have investors standing by wanting to do these. So hopefully we can get started incrementally And there's certainly, at this point, there's investor demand. I mean, we could probably sell a billion of these tomorrow if we could produce them. And so I I think over the coming months, we probably will see it start to blossom finally for the short-term bridge application. And then we can gradually extend it. The other thing we looked at and worked very hard on was what we call a rescue valve share. And we got pretty far with it, but again, that never really came together. And the idea is that a lot of people facing forbearance have equity, but they're Mm -hmm. going to be forced to sell because- They don't have any way to pay their mortgage, and maybe they're going to look for a job. Maybe they're going to get a job. So to me, it's sort of a tragedy. They're forced to sell their home when they're in the middle of a lot of tumult, and just to be able to live and not get foreclosed on. I wanted to offer people a choice of sell a val share in your house. The guy's good for it. He's got plenty of equity, and we got pretty far with bank regulators, but we could never really pull it together as a solution, although we haven't given up. We have not given up. And that was the thing we worked on for about a year before we switched to the equity bridge val share. So I still think it could happen. These things could happen. And I I think they're advantageous. They're just win-win all around. Absolutely.
0: I love your cause. You're helping consumers. You're creating an opportunity for investment that has great returns. What are the factors that we need to change? Is it just adoption?
1: So- I don't think I could say we need change, but I can tell you that one of the most challenging aspects of it is consumer protection and mortgage mm-hmm. regulation. So, the home is the largest asset most people have, and finance around the home is the most highly regulated right. aspect of consumer finance. So, you have to make sure you follow all the regulations and structure it appropriately and originate it appropriately, disclosures and so on. There's a heavy burden there to meet. And I don't have any against it, it makes it harder to innovate. And also, not just from our point of view, but partners. So if we approach a bank and we say, hey, you talk to a lot of homeowners that could benefit from this, they won't go near it because they're so heavily regulated and they're so scrutinized that the last thing they wanna do is innovate in a way that may be beneficial, but will raise an eyebrow with their regulator. So you've got infrastructure of different kinds of people who for good reason are hesitant to do something new. And then you've got investors who want to do it. Maybe they even have a social mindset to their investment. So they're worried about things like this. You have a profit motive and you want to help people. I don't get that. If you have a profit motive, then probably you're pretending to want to help people. And really, you just want to make money. That's a mindset that exists which also makes it hard to get investors to innovate.
0: Makes total sense. man. you sum it up so well. You're so articulate on this topic. I want to go back to Weiss Analytics and uh, talk a little bit about the predictive model. This goes back to our current issue that we're facing on an increasing basis in our industry is a lack of an appraisers out there. You were one of the first to create the first AVM. Is that correct?
1: I wouldn't say the first, but I was there at the beginning. So we were producing price indexes and for most of the major banks and so on. And they called me up and said, hey, can you use the index to give us a value on an individual house? And I said, nah, that'll never work because we could look up a price in the house and index it, but you can't rely on one price. So they said, well, figure it out because we need this. So I set off to work on it, but I think others already started. We were one of the first for sure. Yeah.
0: What developments have there been in AVMs? Is this going to become the new way which mortgage valuations are driven for giving a mortgage?
1: I think we're going to end up with a hybrid solution certainly we need a solution because the volume just well exceeds the capacity of all the appraisers and i mean avms have come a long way artificial intelligence has come a long way there are other innovations that bring more information into the analytical process you can get digitally analyzed aerial photographs of houses yeah. you have drones <laughs> I mean, you can do I mean, some so amazing cool. things yeah. so I think the future is, I won't call it an AVM per se, because that's thought of as a certain kind of solution, but certainly automated analysis of the available data to help arrive at a value in combination with old and new ways to bring current information, imagery, and so on, condition information on the house, integrate all of that, and then integrate that with the appraisal process. For example, what you could do is you run the analysis on a given house and the system can determine, is this very easy and likely to be very accurate? Because there are tons of comps nearby, we have good and fresh condition information, or is this a harder one? So it could be an appraiser standing by, do maybe a cursory check on the easier ones and use the guidance of the analysis to know where they need to dig in deeper. So you kind of have a hybrid which satisfies people need to have a human who has this training touch it in some way, but they're guided by machine learning to touch certain ones more than others. I suspect that's where we're gonna end up and gradually we'll get more comfortable and also as the quality and the information improves so that more of them are fully automated and less of them require human intervention. So it's more of a gradual evolution. I think an industry like the mortgage industry is more comfortable with that than an overnight revolution.
0: Man, we could talk forever. Jack, as you're listening to Alan talk, I know your mind is spinning with what brilliance and innovation we're hearing right now.
2: David, I'm putting my sunglasses on. The amount of brilliance here is yeah. is, is beginning to <laughs> apply. You guys? I mean, Alan was just talking about the evolution of ABMs. at least in my knowledge, will move to that hybrid solution, right? Yeah, it's really the difference between tracked housing and custom-built housing, right? AVMs will be very good at determining valuation and track house. But, I mean, you get a custom-built house and you're going to be a little challenged there. And so there's got to be human intervention to determine the value of a lot of custom upgrades. Like, okay, the track house has got the standard appliance package and this house over here has a sub-zero package, right? And you're never yeah. going to know that until you actually validate that, right? Mm -hmm. So I believe we're looking at a hybrid solution, which at least addresses the issue of the limitations with people entering the appraisal segment of our industry and developing competencies over a long number of years to become a good appraiser, right? How do you solve that? And I think what Alan was talking about is ultimately going to be the near-term solution that we have to look at.
1: Yeah. And, and I think there are a lot of benefits to it. I mean, you could have faster turnaround, you have more objectivity in the process, and there's lower cost. And it, I think it will help with the second wave, hopefully, of new kinds of finance that come along. Because I think people want a faster solution. That I mean, the mortgage process is painful and slow. And so there's a lot of folks trying to just automate various aspects of it, not just the valuation, but the entire thing.
2: Alan, I mean, if I'm an investor, at least I would feel better knowing that there's a digitally sound solution as opposed to people, because people value things differently. People have good days, they have bad days, but good logarithms supported by excellent data, they don't yeah. have
0: bad days.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Right. I think the challenge is they're kind of opaque to people like you can explain how it works, but we need to find ways to make ordinary people comfortable that they can rely on it. For example, that's why we did our visualizations of our maps. It was partly for me so I could understand what our data was saying. How does this thing work? I mean, how does it know? So I think there are ways of sort of unpacking it and demonstrating with concrete examples and so on. How does this thing work so that I'm comfortable with it? I would say this extends beyond the collateral. There's also a lot of work that can be done and is being done on the whole credit side of things. Mm -hmm. There are now deep learning neural network engines that do a very good job of forecasting the probabilities of the cash flows of a mortgage. I'm actually working with a great company in this space right now. And together we combine the collateral information that Weiss Analytics has with the deep learning information that our partner company has, and the level of precision in terms of what are the expected cash flows given where home prices are going, given other patterns this recognizes in mortgage data, helps people understand better prepayment expectations default expectations, loss upon default expectations. There's tons of good data. The whole thing can be priced much better. And frankly, there's a lot of evidence that people are turned down unfairly, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Many people are turned down with the, the current way of doing it with the score in an LTV that shouldn't be turned down. So again, I think it's a positive socially. And if you are turned down, let's figure out why and what you can do about it, not just say no.
0: You thought about getting into the business, what got me into the business, what's kept me in the business, and that is helping people get in homes, stay in homes, and you giving so many more options as it relates to equity. And this is so fascinating. We could just keep going on and on and on forever, Jack. I just want to say, Alan, thank you so much for your time. How can people learn more? What's your website that you would
1: want them to go to? Yeah, so I would recommend going to valshare.com. Anybody involved in the mortgage industry can register because we find that mortgage bankers if they have a homeowner who wants to buy and they don't have the down payment, that's wow. a solution. A, a real estate agent is trying to help someone buy. It's a solution. They might as well register. We're not offering a longer term ValShare now, but we might someday soon. We're going to keep everyone's information. We're not going to give it to anyone. So we're, we're just looking at it as a way to get started. So the more people who find out about it, register, we'll talk to them. We'll try to understand the needs that they're seeing in the marketplace. That's the best way to get it started. So that's ValShare.com. And with that, hopefully next time we talk, I can give you some nice success stories for folks who have benefited from it.
0: Well, I'm going to be going signing up right now to the website, ValShare.com. Yep, that's it. And then ValShield, is that the product of ValShield? Clarify that for me.
1: Yeah, it's confusing. So the product is called ValShare. We have six patents on ValShare. The company that offers the ValShare is ValShield. There is also a website for ValShield, but ValShare is where people can go and register. There's another site that might be of interest. It's bridgemywayhome.com, And there we present three solutions. We talk about the Ribbon solution, we'll buy your next house and rent it to you. The EasyKnock solution, will buy your current house so you can move. And the ValShare solution will invest in a piece of your house so you can make your down payment. And again, full disclosure, the third one is my company, ValShield. But anyway, just in terms of consumer education, I think it's valuable for people to understand the different choices that are out there. So that's BridgeMyWayHome.com.
0: Well, we'll be checking those out, putting those in the show notes, folks. Go check it out. Alan, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.